So hi guys, this is Shivaraman again from Johns Hopkins University. So when we last left off, we were talking about acute pancreatitis and we discussed a number of different complications that you can encounter and the specific terminology you should be using to describe those complications based on the revised Atlantic classification. So why don't we end our discussion of complications by talking about by vascular complications, which I consider to be among the most dreaded complications of pancreatitis. And to be honest, those are the diagnoses that I'm really, really scared of missing on my own studies. Now, when you're talking about vascular complications, you can really divide it into two, venous complications and then arterial complications. So why don't we start by talking about venous thrombosis. Now, when it comes to venous thrombosis, it's quite common in the setting of acute pancreatitis. And I'd say by far the most common vessel to be involved is the splenic vein. And that's not surprising, right? The splenic vein courses immediately adjacent to the pancreas along a large portion of its course. And as a result of intimal injury, as a result of second, as a result of adjacent inflammation, the splenic vein is highly susceptible to thrombosis. Now, most of it is as a result of surrounding inflammation, but every once in a while you'll see venous thrombosis as a result of mass effect and compression of the vein by surrounding phlegmon or fluid collection. Now, even though it's less common than the splenic vein, I'd say the SMV and the portal vein are also thrombosed regularly frequently, with the SMV slightly more common than the portal vein. Now, in most cases, you really need to make it a point to look at all of the central mesenteric vessels on every study to make sure there's no kind of complication. But if you forget to do that, always remember that if you see unusual varices, particularly along the stomach, omentum, gastroboploic region, that you need to look carefully at the SMV, the portal vein, and the splenic vein and find that occult thrombosis. So here's an example. There's clearly a filling defect identified within the SMV, and there's lots of surrounding adjacent stranding and edema. Now, one of the points I always try to make to our own residents and fellows is that you have to make it a point as a part of your standard search algorithm to look at the central mesenteric venous vasculature in every case. So those vessels have to be evaluated separately. And in general, I like to recommend that people look at them not only in the axial plane, but in the coronal plane as well. Short segment filling defects within the SMV are often easy to miss on the axial images, especially when you're going quickly. And it's much easier to identify them when you're looking in the coronal plane. So here's an example of how to utilize the presence of varices to your advantage. Even if you forgot to look at the splenic vein carefully on the source axial images, if you look at this 3D reconstruction, you can see that there's extensive gastropoploic and omental varices, all of which should suggest to you, suggest to you that there is underlying venous thrombosis. Now, in most cases, venous thrombosis occurs as a result of intimal disruption secondary to surrounding leaked pancreatic enzymes and inflammation. But every once in a while, you'll see a venous thrombosis as a result of mass effect and compression by surrounding fluid collection or phlegmon. In this case, you can see how the SMV is stretched and narrowed over a long segment by a surrounding phlegmon and fluid collection. And on the next study, the SMV was completely thrombosed. Now, even though venous thrombosis is a big deal, I think a much bigger deal is the presence of pseudoaneurysms. Now, pseudoaneurysms, to me, are the most dreaded complication. It's one of those things I'm always worried about missing, and it's also one of, those re one of the reasons why every time I look at a patient with acute pancreatitis, I use MIP imaging to evaluate the central mesenteric arterial vasculature, trying to hunt down those subtle, small pseudoaneurysms. Now, this is a big deal, because if you get a pseudoaneurysm from acute pancreatitis and it ruptures, the mortality rate is over 90%. This is also one of those reasons why I recommend that everyone who has suspected pancreatic pathology get an arterial phase. The arterial phase images are important not only for identifying subtle cases of necrosis, but also for identifying small pseudoaneurysms and other arterial vascular complications. 
Now, the most common location for pseudoaneurysms by far is the splenic artery. And again, it's because of the close proximity of the splenic artery to much of the pancreatic parenchyma. But I'd say the second most common location is the GDA, a vessel we tend not to look at regularly as part of our standard search algorithms. And then you'll see a smattering of aneurysms in the pancreatic or duodenal arcade, surrounding the stomach, or in the hepatic vasculature. So here's an example of a pseudoaneurysm you don't want to miss. It's small, right? You know, probably not more than a few millimeters, but there's a surrounding hematoma, and this patient would have been at high risk for morbidity and mortality if the pseudoaneurysm had been missed. Here's a stage at which you don't want to catch the pseudoaneurysm. There's a one centimeter pseudoaneurysm that's essentially ruptured, and there's a huge hematoma in the left abdomen, and although this patient ultimately did okay, you want to catch these complications much earlier than this. Now, now that we've talked about some of the different complications of acute pancreatitis, why don't we end by talking about some of the underlying causes of pancreatitis that we might be able to identify in a CT scan. And I think that really adds value to our dictations. It's not enough just to make the diagnosis, but it's really helpful to the clinicians to give them some sense of what might, might have caused the underlying diagnosis. Now, many of the causes of acute pancreatitis you're not going to be able to identify in a CT scan, whether it's alcoholism or some unusual biochemical abnormality or hypercholesterolemia, et cetera, et cetera. But there are three diagnoses, I think, that you should be able to add on your in your dictation. Is there gallstone pancreatitis? Is there perhaps an unusual case of underlying autoimmune pancreatitis? And then finally, is there any evidence of an underlying pancreatic malignancy? Now, identifying stones for the most part isn't that difficult. Now, obviously, no one is going to argue that CT is as sensitive or specific for the diagnosis of stones compared to ultrasound. But that being said, when I see a bunch of stones in the gallbladder, I'm going to very carefully look at the ampulla to see if there's any stones in the distal CBD, and I'm always going to suggest if there's stones present on the CT scan that may have been the cause for the patient's underlying pancreatitis. Now, while gallstones are not a difficult diagnosis, making the diagnosis of autoimmune pancreatitis is definitely a difficult diagnosis to make. Now, autoimmune pancreatitis is one of those diagnoses that I think we tend to miss all the time. We tend to just call these run-of-the-mill edematous pancreatitis, and we never even think about the possibility of autoimmune disease. Now, autoimmune pancreatitis is a chronic inflammatory pancreatitis. It's relatively rare, probably makes up less than 2% of all cases of pancreatitis, and these patients present very differently than patients with regular edematous pancreatitis. Rather than presenting with acute abdominal pain, they tend to have very little in the way of pain symptoms. Rather, they tend to present very much like a patient with malignancy, weight loss, recent onset diabetes, etc., etc. Now, if you suspect this diagnosis based on the imaging findings, it can be very easily proven. A large percentage of these patients will have an elevated IgG4 level if it's checked, and many patients will respond dramatically within just a few days if you treat them with a bout of steroids. Now, although it can be a difficult diagnosis, and in many cases I think the diagnosis is virtually impossible based on the imaging findings, there are some imaging findings that may help you at least suggest this diagnosis. First of all, you're going to get diffuse enlargement of the pancreas. In rare cases, you'll get focal autoimmune pancreatitis that involves just one portion of the pancreas to another, but that's relatively rare. And usually the entirety of the pancreas is enlarged, but it's going to be completely out of proportion to the amount of edema and stranding. Unlike edematous pancreatitis, where there's a lot of fat stranding, a lot of edema, a lot of inflammatory change, you're going to see almost none of that. But nevertheless, the pancreas will look hugely enlarged. If you're lucky, you're going to see a rim of low attenuation surrounding the pancreas, this capsule of a low attenuation. And that capsule, if you're doing multiphase imaging, will often show delayed enhancement. Now, the pancreatic duct will tend to be non-visualized. 
It's going to be diffusely narrowed as a result of surrounding edema, and you're also going to get some stricturing of the distal CBD. Now, in addition to stricturing of the common duct, you'll often see thickening and enhancement as a result of that inflammatory exudate. Now, because autoimmune pancreatitis is fundamentally an inflammatory disorder which is associated with global systemic autoimmune disease, you're often going to see other extrapancreatic findings. I've seen a bunch of patients with retroperitoneal fibrosis, unusual enlargement of the salivary glands, strange renal lesions, which probably represent unusual renal parenchymal inflammatory lesions or infarcts, strange lung disease, and adenopathy in, uh, with strange locations. So here's an example of autoimmune pancreatitis, and I'm proud to say we were actually able to make this diagnosis prospectively. Notice how this patient has a diffusely enlarged pancreas. It's edematous, you're losing some of those pancreatic lobulations, but there's very little in the way of surrounding fat stranding edema or fluid. If you look really carefully, there's a subtle low attenuation capsule surrounding the margins of the pancreas, and if you put those imaging findings together, you can suggest the possibility of autoimmune pancreatitis. Here's another example, which I think is even more overt big, sausage-like pancreas, and that's often the buzzword that's used. Notice the paucity of any surrounding fat-stranding edema or fluid, and again, notice that subtle rim of low attenuation. There's a capsule around the pancreas, and those findings should allow you to suggest the right diagnosis. Now, once you su suspect the diagnosis, you'd like, you should look really carefully at the remainder of the body to see if there's any evidence of ancillary findings. And I'd say one of the most common ancillary findings are strange lesions in the kidneys. And as I mentioned earlier, they probably reflect underlying vasculitis with the development of either fibroinflammatory lesions or alternatively infarcts. And in this example of a patient who had underlying autoimmune pancreatitis, you can see that there are multiple wedge-shaped areas of hypodensity that are becoming confluent and in certain areas look more mass-like. Now, the final diagnosis I think you always need to be considering in a patient with suspected pancreatitis is the presence of an underlying malignancy. And I think whenever people ask me questions about a case, this always inevitably tends to be the question they have about acute pancreatitis cases. Is there an underlying mass? Should I be worried about malignancy? And I've got to say, this is not always so easy. There are many cases where it's really difficult, and sometimes you're just going to have to scratch your head and say, well, I don't know. Maybe we need to get a short-term follow-up in maybe a week, 10 days, and make sure that once the inflammatory change has gone away, that there's no underlying focal mass. What makes this even more difficult is that, in some cases, pancreatic cancer itself can cause pancreatitis, maybe up to 5% of the time. So sometimes it's not just a matter of pancreatic cancer mimicking pancreatitis. Sometimes the cancer itself can cause pancreatitis. Nevertheless, I think there are some imaging findings which can help you differentiate these two entities. First of all, if I see a dilated pancreatic duct with an abrupt cutoff, in other words, pancreatic ductal obstruction, that's almost unheard of in the setting of acute, acute pancreatitis. Now, you can see it sometimes in chronic pancreatitis, but in the acute setting, it is very rare. And in my mind, you have to at least start thinking about the possibility of a malignancy. Secondly, pancreatitis almost always is going to infiltrate anteriorly. That phlegmon, phlegmonous change, inflammatory change in fluid tend to go outwards into the mesentery. They're almost always going to go anteriorly. And I can't remember the last time I saw a case of acute pancreatitis where there was infiltration posteriorly. On the other hand, pancreatic cancer does almost the exact opposite. Almost never does it infiltrate anteriorly out into the mesentery. It usually comes posteriorly where it involves the central mesenteric arterial and venous vasculature. So here's an example of a patient with acute pancreatitis caused by an underlying mass. And you can see that the pancreatic body and tail are inflamed, they're enlarged, there's edematous, and you're seeing surrounding stranding and edema. So there is pancreatitis, 
but notice how there's a more focal mass at the level of the pancreatic head, obstructing the common bile duct, necessitating the placement of a metallic stent. So in summary, I think that when you're evaluating cases with potential pancreatitis, you really need to take an algorithmic approach. You want to start by determining what type of pancreatitis you're dealing with. Is it acute edematous pancreatitis or is it acute necrotizing pancreatitis? And that distinction is critical because these two forms of pancreatitis carry with them very different potentials for both morbidity and mortality. The next step is to determine whether there's any major complications, whether it's pancreatic necrosis, whether it's fluid collections, or major vascular complications. And you want to be careful to utilize the right nomenclature based on the most recent revised Atlantic classification so that you're on the same page as both your surgical and gastroenterology colleagues. Remember, the nomenclature that you use carries with it a sp significant implication as to what the patient's ultimate manage management should be. Finally, once you've made the diagnosis and identified major complications, the final step is to see if there's any clues on that scan that may allow you to suggest an underlying cause for the pancreatitis, whether it's stones, an underlying malignancy, or autoimmune disease. So I think that's it. Why don't we end there? And until next time, this is Shiva Raman from Johns Hopkins. Bye.